Just before we get into the book of Ephesians this morning, I wanted to draw something to your attention. Uh, Perhaps you received the Lansing State Journal this week and you saw the insert in there for uh, Alan Morris, who would not be happy with me for putting his photo on the screen, but hey, I'm figuring it's all over the newspaper, so I'll do it. Uh, But there's there's a reason for doing this. Um, Alan was chosen as the 2013 Nurse of the Year. He attends the Saturday night service and He's very uncomfortable with being in the spotlight and, and does not like that well at all. So it's a good thing he's working this weekend. Um, but just know that I, I did tell him I was going to do this, and actually I asked him about doing it. Because back on Monday or Tuesday, he sent me an email. Um, he knew that this announcement was coming out, obviously. And I wanted you to hear the email in light of the fact of what we talked about last weekend when we looked at Ephesians 5.21 and we talked about being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That's the passage we looked at. And we talked about the concept that we get to be putting our crowns at Jesus' feet one day. The things that we've achieved here on earth really go to Him as His reward. Well, this is uh, what Alan's note was to me. And it was in light of what he heard last weekend coming out of the teaching. Mark, I want to thank you for the message today and perspective that it brought. Recently, I was named Nurse of the Year by the Lansing State Journal. It's not a recognition that I have sought, nor am I very comfortable with receiving. I've never been an in-the-spotlight kind of person, but I am both humbled and honored. Initially, I really struggled with how to handle the attention and had a few thoughts towards asking them to pick someone else. If you know Alan, that sounds just like him, right? The Lord reminded me, though, that if I walk the Ephesians walk, as you have been preaching, if Jesus actually indwells me, and if I am filled with the Holy Spirit, then it's really Him that's being recognized for the work that He has simply done through me. Today was a reminder that I get to practice the casting of crowns, albeit earthly, at His feet, simply because He's earned it and He is worthy. It's a great perspective for each of us because in the midst of our work day, Whether you're in a medical office or in a factory, you're driving a truck, it matters not. If you're doing it to the glory of God and for His kingdom and for His sake, you're really putting crowns at the feet of Jesus. And it's a great perspective to keep in mind as you move through the midst of your work week. Even when you feel like you're not being recognized or no one cares what you do, Jesus cares. That's that's what matters most. So I'm going to pray with you right now before we step into Ephesians. Would you do that with me? And then I'm going to encourage you to open your Bible up. God, we come before you right now asking that you would focus our thoughts, that you would center us in the midst of a very busy week behind us and a busy week ahead of us, but in this time we ask that you would speak to us specifically through your word. You happen to have chosen me as your speaker, but allow your people to hear your voice. God, that can only happen through the work of your Holy Spirit, through your power and through your ability. So make your word come alive, Father. Bring conviction where conviction is necessary. But more than that, Father, we ask for understanding. Help us to see things that are a mystery to the rest of the world. God, we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I'm going to put a quote up on the screen from uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He was a pastor in the 1800s in England. I I just want you to soak on this just for a moment. Just read it through. When the home is ruled according to God's word, angels might be asked to stay with us and they would not find themselves out of their element. It's a very convicting statement, isn't it? It makes you want to go, oh, does my home measure up? 
And I'll ask you that question. Does your home measure up to that? Is that the setting that you find? Do you have heaven in your home? That's only something that you can personally evaluate or the members of your family can evaluate. Here's the problem. Very few homes are governed by God's Word. And I mean even among Christians. Very few homes are really governed by God's Word and the consequences are tragic. So many in society have just disregarded the teachings of Scripture because they find the truths of the Bible so hard. It's really hard work. Uh, this week, I was working through this passage that we're about to look at, and if you know Ephesians 5:21 through the end of the chapter, you know what's coming. It's a very, very hard passage. And I was thinking about the difficulty in wrestling through it, and my mind drifted back. Uh, Lori and I were Friday night uh, talking with another couple, and I instantly remembered uh, working out in the gym six years ago. I went to the gym with a guy who was a bodybuilder, a professional bodybuilder. And that was my first mistake, just going with him to the gym. Now, in that setting, he said, Mark, what I'm going to do is I'm going to teach you the way that I work out, and I want you to do everything that I do. Now, he was gracious to me when he said, you won't be able to lift the weights that I lift, but I want you to go through the motions that I go through and do the things that I do. So obviously, the male ego kicks in. I'm thinking, yeah, you're wrong, man. I can do everything that you do. Well, that was my first mistake. So he picks up the 110-pound barbells and starts curling them. I'm realizing, okay, I'm out of my league. So I pick up some wimpier barbells, something smaller, and start curling, but I'm doing everything that he's doing. And I get like 30% of the way into the workout, and my arms are just killing me. And they begin to hang, and I can't really lift the weights anymore. And I said, you know what? I'm going to need to quit at this point. And I start making my way to the locker room. He said, well, that's okay. I'm going to stay here and do a little bit more. You go ahead. So I'm thinking, I'm going to go die. So I make my way into the locker room, and I somehow manage to get out of my workout clothes, and I'm headed for the shower, and I realize this shower has a shower curtain on it, and I have no arm strength whatsoever to lift my hands to even move the shower curtain. So I have to lean my head into it and move the shower curtain over, but then I'm standing in a shower, and I can't get the curtain back, so I have to Bite the curtain and pull it back across. Now, I look up on the shower wall, and wouldn't you know it, the shampoo dispenser is way up here, okay? And I can't get my arm up to it. So the only thing I have is my head, and I'm bumping my head into the shower dispenser trying to catch some soap, and I can't lift my arm to get the soap to my head, so I'm going like this, trying to get my... And the soap's flying over the top of my head, and some of it land on my forehead, but then I can't get my hands up to shampoo, it's hard, hard work to work out like that. Many people look at the truths of God's Word and say, yeah, I'm out. No way. I can't do that. Look at what He's asking us to do. Some people even go to the degree that they say, that workout is so hard that it even actually looks out of date. I mean, come on. That may be applied to that century, to that period of time. I actually find it offensive. And they say to our modern mindset in 2013, God's ways may be above our ways, but it seems totally contrary to the society that we live in. So many in the church are perplexed by God's Word, let alone those outside the church who are looking in, trying to say, how does the church actually function with this kind of commands from God?
Well, as you've discovered in the last 12 weeks as we're working through the book of Ephesians, what God's really called us to is a new dimension of thinking, a new way of living, an entirely new lifestyle, something that's radically different from the rest of the world. And we are to look absolutely different. As we look into the marriage relationship this morning, in Ephesians 5.22, on through the rest, what I want to encourage you is if you're single this morning, or perhaps you're widowed, you're, maybe you're not in a marriage relationship, I want you to look at this through the lens of you know someone who is, you know someone who needs to hear this information. Use what you're going to hear this morning to speak into that person's life. But for husbands and wives this morning, as you look at this, understand your family can be what God has designed it to be, especially when the members of the family are what God designed them to be. So Charles Haddon Spurgeon's quote is not that far off base because it's very accurate to God's word, that if our home is designed around God's word, it can be like heaven on earth. What we're about to explore this morning is not very popular. As a matter of fact, it's incredibly unpopular. So understand this. What is written here was written to God's people. That's why the church is unique, because God has written to us. For those who are outside the church looking at it, you should expect them to say, that's pretty weird stuff. So I wondered this week as I'm working through this, I I personally wonder if, if God looks at our nation, the United States, in 2013 with a sense of annoyance at us for our attempt to redefine marriage because he, he's eternal and he saw that the Romans tried to redefine marriage and he saw that the Greeks tried to redefine marriage and here we're trying to do it in 2013. We're trying to redefine marriage. Well, the last time I checked, the word of the Lord stands forever. It's unalterable. It's unchangeable. As a matter of fact, Isaiah 40 says this, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. So what he said about marriage in Genesis is the same as what he said during the time of Paul. It's the same as 2013. God already defined marriage. We're going to look at what he has to say this morning. Logically, you would expect a Christian marriage to be radically different from the rest of the world. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21. You'll see it up on the screen as well if you don't have a Bible with you this morning. This is where we left off last week. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. We talked a lot last week about what it means to be in the fear of Christ, but we began with this admonition. We're supposed to submit to each other. I'm supposed to submit to you, you're supposed to submit to me, meaning we're putting the other person first. Well, he's about to move into wives being subject to their husbands. Now, I want to frame this by going to Galatians 3.28 first. Look with me on the screen at Galatians 3.28. It says this, In Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That means there's no classifications in Christianity. You have the same promise that I have. You have the same inheritance that I have. I have the same destiny that you have. I have the same standing before God that you have before God. We're all equal. But in matters of role and function, God has made some distinctions. God has given structure. And in his structure, it, like this, employers have authority over employees. And in the church, leaders have authority over congregations. Parents have authority over their children. In government, 
There's authority over the people. Well, God says this about marriage. Verse 22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, I told you this is not going to be very popular. And the staff actually asked me a couple weeks ago when they saw what was coming up for Mother's Day. They said, you're not going to teach that on Mother's Day, are you? Well, that's God's providence because I didn't choose for this to land on Mother's Day. But here it is, ladies. And I just want to be really clear about what God's saying here, especially in in relation to this word subject, because we talked about it last week. The first thing I want you to understand, ladies, is the word wives. In the Greek language, there's qualified words and there's unqualified words, meaning there's words that can have extracurricular meaning to them if they're qualified, and there's those that mean exactly what they say when they're unqualified. The word wives here is not qualified in any way. Let me explain that. Regardless of your social standing, Regardless of your wealth, of your education, of your intelligence, regardless of your spiritual maturity, there's no qualification there. So that means it's not qualified by your husband's intelligence. It's not qualified by his character or by his attitude or by his spiritual maturity level. It's unqualified. Categorically, all believing wives are to be subject to their own husband. So it's really important that you understand what it means to be subject to. We talked about this word last week, hupatasso. It's in your notes this morning inside your bulletin. I didn't put it on the screen this morning because you were familiar with it from last week. But remember, it's a military term. And the military term, hupatasso in the Greek language, literally means you're relinquishing your rights. No one took it from you. You voluntarily give it up. So the the reason the military term is very familiar to us because here in the United States, we have the understanding that we don't have a draft anymore. People who serve in the military serve voluntarily. And when they enter the military, they understand there's going to be commanding officers. There's a rank of authority. That's why Paul is using this word here. It's a submission, a voluntary response to God's will. You're giving up independent right to someone who's been ordained as the authority over you. So in the military, it's the commanding general. Well, in the marriage relationship, God has ordained that the husband would be over the wife. No one took it from you. Now, there's a very intimate term here when he says, to your own husband. There's a great intimacy here, ladies, because in your submission, you're willingly subjecting yourself to the one that you have decided to possess as your own. You've aligned yourself with this person. So there's a mutual possessiveness going on. And do you notice the attitude that it's done in? The attitude of submission is as to the Lord. So when you submit to your husband's lady, you're really submitting to Jesus. Same concept that Alan used when he said he's casting the crowns at Jesus' feet. It's really Jesus doing it through him. So a wife who does not submit to her husband is not submitting to the Lord. Now, you might very quickly think, this sounds like male chauvinism. I I want you to be very clear. Paul is not teaching from a bias of male chauvinism. What he's really doing is he's reinforcing God's original plan. And the problem is when the church tries to operate apart from God's system and God's hierarchy, it creates confusion and it perplexes people. So he goes on to clarify. Go with me to verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, 
so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Right away, you get two motives here. There's a motive for your submission, and it's because, G, because he's the head. Jesus has said he's the head. And there's the model of submission. Now, so the motive is because God said so. God says the husband is the, the, HUD, <laughs> the husband is the head of the family, just as Christ is the head of the church. So what does the head do? The head gives direction. So let's think of this physically. If my head says to my body, I want you to go to the right, but my body goes to the left, you're right away going to think, well, he's spastic. Look at that. His head's trying to go to the right, but his body's trying to go to the left. Well, spiritually, ladies, you can be, you can be dysfunctional in your actions if you're not submitted to the head. Now, hang on, because the guy's turn is coming. There's the model of submission here is that because himself, Jesus, is the head of the church, him being the Savior, what he's really doing is he's putting the burden on the men. He's saying the men have the responsibility. If you start right there with himself being the Savior in verse 23, it's much, much more clear. This, this is the ultimate definitive model for leadership. Jesus is the perfect provider. He's the perfect protector. He's the perfect leader. He's the perfect head. So let's flesh it out. How did Jesus want them to understand the issue of authority? Well, let's go to the last night that Jesus was alive on planet Earth. It's the Last Supper. Disciples are gathered in a room. Jesus is thinking about what's ahead of him. And if you were to listen in and you had your ear to the door, you would hear the disciples arguing. Do you remember what they were arguing about? Who's the greatest? Come on, guys, I got the best seat in the house. I mean, I'm the greatest. They're going back and forth. So what does Jesus do in that setting when he's about to be killed? He gets out a bucket of water and a towel, and he begins to wash their feet. See, the higher authority put himself in a role of submissiveness to them, not because he had to submit himself to them, but what he's doing is he's teaching the greatest person is the one who uses his authority to build other people up. That's the model that's being given here. We're to esteem others as more important than ourselves, according to Romans 12. So Jesus is instructing the disciples to do this. Why? For one very basic reason. Because it's contrary to who Mark Kring is. It's contrary to who you are. My basic nature is to promote myself and to lift myself up. A Holy Spirit nature is enabling us to submit ourselves. So that's why Paul said several verses back in verse 18, be filled with the Spirit because the Spirit enables you to be submissive to other people. So in my fallen nature, I want to promote myself, but in the Spirit-filled nature, I'm going to submit myself. Now, I just want to land on verse 23 for just one more moment before we move on because it says, for the husband is the head of the wife. Guys, hear me really clearly on this. Headship is not dictatorship. It isn't. The, the word that's used here when we think of the marriage ceremony that took place in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s here in the United States, you would always hear this word used, to love, honor, and obey, okay? You don't hear that word so much anymore. Well, actually, that word obey was a mistake. It should have never been put in the marriage vows because it was a misinterpretation of Scripture, the word obey is never used in the Bible for the husband and wife relationship. The difference is the word hupatasso that I talked to you about last week, 
Hupatasso meaning submit yourself to. It should have been love, honor, and submit because in the spirit of Christ, you're submitting yourself to the other person's leadership. The word for obey it is a totally different Greek word, and the way that it's used in the language is associated with children to their parents. So the word is actually hupakao, and that's the concept of obey in which a child hears the parent's command and commands the child to do something, and the child, hupakao, obeys the parent. Well, God's model is not that the husband commands the wife or dictates to her, but rather There's a a mutual understanding, and finally, somebody has to be the decision maker, and the husband is the head. So it's not a dictatorship, but rather it's a mutual relationship. Now, in in your case, obviously, I don't know your situation. You might be tempted to say back to me, Mark, you have no idea what the man in my life is like. You, You just totally don't understand how can I be subject to him. Now, at the risk of um, not wanting to repeat Emerson Egrich in his great book on love and respect, I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to encourage you, purchase Emerson's book on love and respect. If, if you're not familiar with it, look it up yourself and, and study this concept of how men and women fall into what Emerson calls the crazy cycle because one will disqualify themselves by saying, I can't because he doesn't measure up. Well, we just saw in Scripture, regardless women of his spiritual maturity or his intelligence or his understanding, you submit to him because that's God's standard. So Emerson is helping us to understand you can avoid the crazy cycle. But here's what I can help you to understand. Who Paul is writing to. In the first century, he has three people groups in the church in Ephesus. There's the Jewish believers, there's the Greeks, and there's the Romans Now, just frame this in your mind when you think that maybe you can't submit to the one who's in authority over you. Let's think, first of all, what the women were facing in the Jewish culture. Because in the morning, every Jewish man who was a Hebrew of Hebrews would begin his day praying this way, God in heaven, I thank you that I was not born a Gentile. God, I thank you that I was not born a slave. And God... Thank you that I was not born a woman. That's the mindset of the Jewish man in the first century. And they used the provision in Deuteronomy chapter 24 for divorce to great lengths. They were constantly divorcing their wives. Even if their wives burned dinner, they'd come home at the end of the day and they'd send their wife out with a letter of divorce just so they could start all over again. They usually were ducking out of marriages. Now that's the Jewish world. In the first century Greek society, the women's situation was even worse because the men had concubines. And the women were only there to provide in a wife-husband relationship legitimate children to be heirs to their fortune and simply bearing them to keep house. So the Greek men had very little reason to divorce their wives because they had all these concubines. And so in the Greek culture, there wasn't even a word for what we use as divorce today. You couldn't find it in the court systems because men never filed for divorce. Now, if that's not bad enough, if you go into the Roman society, you find it gets worse yet because marriage was little more than legalized prostitution. And women quickly in the Roman culture decided, we're going to claim our independence. And so women began to refuse to bear children to Roman men because it ruined their body, and they didn't want to have their body ruined by bearing children. Sound familiar? 
So we have women in the Roman culture who were sending their husbands out to concubines, saying, go have children with them. And the women became so independent, they desired to do everything that men did. And some women went into wrestling, and they went into sword fighting in the arenas. They actually went out chasing wild pigs with spears because they wanted to show their independence. They even went to the length where they began to be the ones to initiate divorces filings. So that's who Paul is writing to. He's got this church in Ephesus with all these new believers in Jesus who have come out of this pagan society with all this extracurricular thinking that they believe is the way to function. And Paul's saying, that's not a biblical model. That's not the way God wants marriage to work. That may be the way society works, but that's not God's standard. So as you study this, remember it's being written to believers and Paul's admonishing you to live in total contrast to the really corrupt society that's around you, to be radically different. Now that's to women. Men, it's about to get hard for you. Let's go to verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Now guys, hear me on this. He's got a whole lot more to say to you than what he said to the women. And he sets a really, really high bar. Men, love your wives. How much? Just as Christ loved the church, can you set a higher bar, Paul? Thank you very much. Now, anybody here want to say that they're loving their wife as much as Christ loved the church? Because I'll be glad to sit down here and let you come teach. That, that, uh, this is a very uncomfortable thing for any guy to have to teach because this is the highest measure possible for married life and for married love. It doesn't get any higher than this. So the best I can do is to give you a couple biblical illustrations take you back to the Old Testament and give you two examples out of the Old Testament. The first one comes from the Song of Solomon. If you're keeping notes this morning, you should write down Song of Solomon chapter 2 because what you're about to look at is a relationship between a husband and a wife, a biblical model for how the wife views her husband. And I'll explain it in just a minute. But before I go any further, I want you to see this. You're looking at a love letter. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest. Now stop. You know that you're reading a Hebrew woman's writing. Because a Hebrew of Hebrews wrote in word pictures. And she's saying, my man, he's like a fruit tree in a dark, dark forest. So she's got this image in his mind. He really stands out to her. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest. So it really stands out. So is my beloved among the young men. In his shade, I took great delight and sat down. See the picture she's painting for you? And his fruit was sweet to my taste. You can just see her crunching into that apple, can't you? So he has brought me to his banquet hall, and his banner over me is love. Why do I bring that out for you? Because in Song of Solomon chapter 2, what you're looking at is the wife of the king of the nation writing a love letter to her husband, King Solomon. And here's why that's significant. 
This is a man who's used to telling people where to go and when to be there and what to do. You do this tomorrow, you do this, you military commanders, you go to that nation. You guys, you build this wall for me. He's a commander. He's an authority figure. Do you see any hint of authority or superiority? You see a woman who loves her man because he's held her in high esteem. He has loved her properly, so she's got a lot of respect for him. Now, she mentions his banner over me as love. This is why that's significant. In the ancient days when a king wanted to make a proclamation, especially someone of Solomon's notoriety, they would create a banner by which people would carry the standards on either side of the banner, and they would put their proclamation on the banner. In this case, she's saying, my husband is proclaiming that he loves me. And he didn't just say it to me in secret. He's telling everyone, his banner over me? It's love, baby. He loves me. That's why she's willing to say in verse 16, look at how she ends it up. This is my beloved and my friend. See, guys, can your wives say that about you today? He's not just my beloved. He's my friend. We've got a deep, deep bond together. Our love is that mutual. It's that strong. Why? Because he is her protector and he's her provider, and he's her lover, and he's eager about what he does. Otherwise, she'd never write that way. Now, here's the second Old Testament illustration for you. It comes from the Garden of Eden. You find Adam and Eve in, in, in perfect creation before the fall. And we're told that their relationship is so perfect, it's beautiful harmony, perfect marriage, and when Adam first saw Eve, he immediately recognized her as his companion, and he said, that one is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and she's hot. That's my woman, and she belongs to me. Why? Because she has no blemishes, no shortcomings, her character and the way that she speaks of her husband is so pure that God could go on to say they were both naked and they knew no shame because their love was that pure for each other. There was nothing that was adulterating it. So their original creation was so pure and perfect, there's no selfishness. God went to the degree that when he said in Genesis 1.26 that when, when they rule, he used the word them he said, I have given to them to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the creatures of the land. The husband and wife ruled together because the relationship was that perfect. So you understand marriage was corrupted because both man and the woman twisted God's plan for the relationship. That's why Lucifer went to the woman because God had made Adam the, the leader, the head of the family. So he goes to the woman to circumvent God's plan and he gets the woman to be the one to entice the man making the woman the decision maker because scripture says she ate of the fruit willingly and then offered it to her husband. She usurped and they reversed their roles and marriage has been a struggle ever since. And you see that the destruction of the family was the immediate and very deliberate result because shortly thereafter, you see the first murder. Cain kills Abel, brother kills brother. And then you go on just a couple more chapters and you find Lamech, the polygamist, who's taking multiple women. That is, none of that is God's plan. So Satan knows what to do. He goes after the home because if he can weaken the home, he can destroy society. 
And, and men, if you bite into his bait that he offers you, you're really just playing into his plan and you're helping him undermine and destroy everything meaningful that God ever put out there for us. So God's way to a successful marriage is this, to focus on what husbands and wives put into it, not on what they get out of it. So the emphasis for me, for Mark this morning, I hope you're seeing it the same way, is, is not on my authority over my wife, Laura Lee. It's not on my authority position, but rather on how well I demonstrate my love for her to the degree that I hope she could put a banner over and say, his banner over me is love. I'm not going to ask her right now. I don't want to set myself up because I want to finish this, but I feel fairly confident. So... <laughs> This is how much we love our wives, guys, and, and young men, single men, who are looking to the future when you will take a spouse to yourself. Remember this. The kind of love you are to have for the woman in your life is so boundless that Scripture says it's going to measure up to the way that Jesus loves the church. How, how high is that measurement? Well, let's ask ourselves, to what degree does Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her. Now, do you remember what he gave up? The ruler of heaven, the one who spoke the universe into existence, who's sitting on a glorious throne. Let me remind you of this from Philippians 2.6. It says, he had all the privileges of God the Son. Look with me on the screen. Jesus, not regarding equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So when Paul says, he loves you so much, he gave himself up for you, he surrendered everything first, and then he died. That's the measure of love, guys. So it's Jesus' character to rescue, and it's his character to love, even when we're unlovely. That means even when your spouse has morning breath or when they're quirky or they dress weird. Right, honey? I don't mean you, I mean me. <laughs> we won't get into marriage therapy this morning, but typically she has to correct my clothing choices. So, so <laughs> I should never have gone there. <laughs> Here, here's, the, here's the thought behind this. Romans 5.8. I want you to see this on the screen. This is where we're going to be wrapping it up. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We're told that Jesus loves the church so much. This is the measure of men to women. He loves the church so much that even when we were ugly, Sin is ugly. Even while we were yet depraved, separated, destined for hell, for eternity, God loved us. See, that's why I can say in spite of morning breath or in spite of quirkiness, because the world loves that way. The world loves when everything looks good on the outside, but God loves right to the core. It's what Scripture calls unfailing love. It never goes away. So here's the principle. 
Loving as Christ's love does not depend on what others are, but entirely on what I am in Jesus. You hear me on that? Loving your wife, guys, is not dependent on what that person is, but rather on what you are in Jesus. That's the kind of love that Christ has for the church. Now, Paul ends it by this this beautiful word picture. He he uses this phrase in, in the last part of it by saying that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Here's the imagery that he's using on. He's playing on a word picture. In the ancient Greek culture, when a young woman was betrothed to a man, the day of her wedding, her bridal party would come and find her wherever she was at in the city. And this is how her marriage day would begin. They would escort her to the nearest body of water, if it was a river or a lake or a well, and disrobe her and take her into the water. And the women in the bridal party would wash her completely. So that's why Paul is using this imagery of wash with water, but it goes further than that because in, in their context, whatever her life, the, the ancient Greek bride, whatever it had been before is, is now because of the washing that they did, symbolically, she's been purified and she would enter into the marriage life without any moral or social blemish whatsoever and her past was washed away. What much more than that, immeasurably greater, Paul is saying, Christ gave himself up for us because he wants to sanctify us by cleansing us by the washing of the water with the word of God. And it's not symbolic. It's real. And God says your past is your past. This is your new beginning. It's complete. I'm going to wash you with the water of the word. I'm going to give you a brand new beginning. You'll know who you are in me. And then you can move forward in a perfect relationship because you understand what my standards are for marriage and my standards never change. That's why Paul ends it in verse 28 by saying this, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Here's this really familiar statement. I know you've heard it at weddings. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We're talking about unbreakable love. You've heard this phrase before, leave and cleave. A man is supposed to leave his parents and cleave to his wife. You know what Paul's doing here? You wonder perhaps where that quote ever came from? Well, it didn't originate with Ephesians 5. Paul is quoting the book of Genesis, chapter 2, when God said, for this cause shall a man leave his mother and father and shall cleave unto his wife. This word that's used here is proskalao. And I just want you to see this one Greek word. That's the only one I'm going to put on the screen this morning. Proskalao literally means cemented together, glued in an inseparable bond. Now, what this tells me is in the big picture here, husbands and wives are to to leave their parents and cleave and be cemented to each other. They break one set of binds and they come and establish the other one. But here's the much, much bigger picture. God's standard didn't change from the time of Adam and Eve all the way to the time of Paul thousands of years later. 
That tells me that God's standard has not changed from the time of Paul all the way to 2013. If God said in Genesis chapter 2, a man shall be bound to his wife, and I mean it for all eternity, he really meant it for all eternity. So God's standards never change. So Paul ends this way in verse 32. This mystery is great. It's megas. But I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So he's saying this is a monster image here that you have before you of how Christ loved the church. So your relationship, guys, and women with your men is to be modeled on the highest possible standard. Never let anyone talk you out of that. So giving is such an immeasurable example to your grandchildren and the legacy that you'll leave to those who come behind you. The way that you submit to your spouse now echoes to your children and your children's children and their children's children. It just keeps on going and going and going. Now, here's where some of you might be at today. You might say, I I have no way to fix what I have broken. You, You have no idea, Mark, how messed up our marriage is. Or the relationships that I've had in the past, they've just crumbled. I'm here to tell you, you can start today. Your past is your past. God is the originator of new beginnings. So rather than camping in your past, camp in your future in which God says, this is what your marriage is supposed to look like. You start today because God, I promise you, will forgive. He will cleanse and he will restore But go away knowing this, he does not change his standards or his measurement of purity. The word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray, church. God, I thank you for truth and that you made it so clear for us that even in the midst of a very confused society who is wondering, what does marriage look like? You said you've got the answer. And we take great confidence in that, God, that we can move forward through this week with boldness, knowing that we know that we know that we know that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and you do not change. So, Father, I thank you for your mercy and for your forgiveness. And you you have told us that as far as the east is from the west, you're willing to separate our sins from us if we're only willing to confess them. So God, for those who need new beginnings this morning, I ask that you would help them to recognize first the need to confess before you and to ask for that brand new beginning. Take them to that place where they realize they can start today. Thank you, Father, for hope. I pray that you make your church bold as we take on this week. Help us to walk in the power of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen.